Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life. I am so excited for this episode. We're going to be joined by an amazing diocesan priest, as you see here from this great article of The Catholic Sun. He was led on a spiritual journey that led him to write a book and start an apostolate. So I am so, so excited to be joined by my good friend, Father Jason Hage of the Diocese of Syracuse. Father, how you doing? Doing great, Nick. How are you? Dude, I am. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to, to be on here with you, to chat with you. I'm always excited to do little interviews with you uh, for the podcast and all the things that I do with media in my life. I feel like I, I've interviewed you now probably, I don't know, maybe like four times. I think this might be four. Fourth and every time feels like the first time. I know. <laughs> I enjoy it so much. I Ain't that right? Oh every, my gosh. every time's exciting, dude. So it's pumped so for this. How are you doing? How's your life? Uh, I would say it is, um, it's blessed. That's what I would say. Nice. You know, so like if you're going to post on Facebook and you click the feeling, you know how they say I'm fit, you know, you click the thing. It's like, I'm feeling you'd be saying blessed. Oh, so hashtag blessed every day, dude. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Every day I wake up and I am healthy. I just love to do the work and to serve. So it's, it's, I'm just so grateful for the simple things, you know? Yeah, no, that's awesome. So I'm excited to be with you again. You are doing a lot of great things. Um, so people of this podcast might not know, or maybe they do. Um, but you recently uh, wrote a book, The Cyrenian Way, which I want to get to and talk about that. But I want to kind of lead into that by talking about your story a little bit. You've already been on the podcast before, so we can kind of go over that little bit quicker and then dive into more of uh, your your heart for this uh, new ministry and this new uh, mission you have with your book that you wrote so um, so let's let's kind of do the 360 view first and let's talk about you know where did you come from how did you find your faith what brought you to priesthood yeah I'd say uh, well it all starts with the, the gift of faith uh, and and the fact that uh, it's joy joy is what brought me to to all of it um so when i was in high school uh you know i i didn't really know what was going on at church you know i would go to mass and i thought man this is like this is tough feels like just watching paint dry i really know no emotive connection to anything going on around me when i was at church or around church um but also felt like a great emptiness emptiness in my life uh, and like longing for connection and relationship and meaning and purpose. Uh, and I, I really wasn't convinced that uh, there was such thing as a purpose when I was in high school. Um, you know, I was always kind of like a skeptic, you know, and, and always kind of like curious and questioning. And um, but I got to a point where, uh, you know, I hit a pretty low point in my young life. And I just for the first time ever opened my heart to God. And I'll never forget the night that I just knelt down and said, I don't know if you're there, God. I don't even know if you can hear this. I don't know if you're listening, but if you are, uh, this is your time. I'm giving you this time. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm open. I'm opening myself up to you and to your spirit. And uh, man, was that a dangerous prayer to pray because all of a sudden 
uh, things just started to happen, you know, and people started to say things to me that I knew uh, God was speaking pretty clearly through those who were around me, through people that I trusted and loved, were just saying things that were uncanny about yeah. purpose and meaning and most especially faith. So uh, I ended up giving my heart to Jesus. Uh, and I know it's funny to hear a Catholic priest say that, but I really did. Uh, I gave my heart to Jesus when I was a junior in high school and just dove headfirst into a daily prayer life. Um, and every day I prayed, it just got more exciting and it got more interesting. And mm. it was like God was showing himself to me. And I was just like, wow. And I knew it wasn't, it wasn't just God's heart for me. It was God's heart for everybody, which blew me away that like this salvation thing is like, uh, it's meant for everyone. And it's amazing that as I was going through that conversion experience, which really took a couple of years uh, from that first moment that I opened my heart to God and, and just kept learning more and more about him. And he kept revealing himself to me. And, um, and especially through Holy Mother Church, through the church's tradition and scripture, um, man, it was just like a whole wide world was broken up for me. And um, I remember the big change that happened because my siblings, my younger brother and sister, uh, they said to me once during my senior year, like, what's up? And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, I'm, I didn't think of myself as like a bad guy. I was actually pretty boring in high school. Uh, you know, I played high school hockey. I had fun, but like, I never like you know, went out and didn't things like that. Uh, so they were like, yeah, um, there's a change. I'm like, what the change? My brother and sister are like, yeah, you're just like happier. Yeah. You're like nicer. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, was I not nice before? And they're like, no, no, like you're, you're like enjoying your life. Mm. And I'd even, I didn't even know it was happening. I, I didn't even sense the change yeah. because it was just something that was so internal and felt so like such a natural response to the love I was receiving from God. Um, by the way, my patron saint, St. Francis of Assisi is my confirmation name. And it was actually reading his biography. Yeah. Uh, and that scene of the Lord just like totally lavishing his love on St. Francis and realizing that was for me and for everybody. Uh, yeah. but like that just led to this deep joy, like this reckless abandon, like detachment from all things uh, and enjoying everything as the gift that it is from the hands of our father. And so I just love that. I remember the sister like, yeah, you're yeah. like, you're like happy. And I'm like, and then even my high school hockey team, my senior year were like, they noticed the change. And they're like, dude, you come in, you're like smiling. You're like, Hey, what's up? And I'm like, and I wasn't like bubbly, but I was just like, right. they noticed it too. Like there was a joy that was just welling up from within. And I didn't even notice it until all these people around me that have known me, you know, since I was a little kid. Right. We're starting to say these things like, what is this? So even my call to priesthood, a lot of my discernment of that call is around how do I share this joy I've received? Yeah. Because, man, it's like life-saving. It's life-changing, and it, it, it saves lives. Like the love of Jesus saved my life. That's awesome. Like, literally. So, yeah. That's pretty incredible. And, you know, you talk about how this whole idea of joy – is full circle for you as you find Jesus and you start to live your life and you find your calling. And if I'm not mistaken, you, I think you had been into priesthood maybe a little bit after this, once this came out, but the first, I, or maybe it was the second, I don't remember, I don't know. But one of the letters that Pope Francis writes right away is joy of the gospel. How does that impact you 
in your priesthood mm -hmm. coming from that as your perspective what how did that impact you that that was his first thing that he really he's really promoting it's i think it's almost probably one of the most things that i hear people quote of his is this idea of joy of the gospel and this is what kind of is your foundation of your faith and now entering into your priesthood what's that like for you yeah, so the the joy of the gospel was published um, the year before I was ordained a deacon. So it was in my last two years of seminary formation, and it was fascinating, like the timing of all of that, because uh, the Archbishop of Baltimore had tasked me with helping found Young Adult Ministry for the Archdiocese when I was living in Baltimore and attending St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, which is was just a wild ride. It was a wild adventure, and I was like, so what, what would you like me to do? And the rector of the basilica is like, we just want you to do what you do. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like literally gave me like free reign just to be like, how do you start up young adult ministry in the city of Baltimore? Um, what's cool is that young adult ministry is still going today, which is pretty awesome. But awesome. one of the first things that I did is like a faith formation series with the young adults was joy of the gospel. And I remember just diving like headfirst into that. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. that's my heart. Like, and everything that he, he's speaking to in that document, like, it's just true because it's true for my own experience. Like it was something that I experienced personally when I came to encounter Jesus and his love for the first time and how that joy is something that gets deeper. Right. Like I didn't even think it could get better, but it does. So that's, and that document kind of speaks to that, that idea of the importance of the moment of encounter yeah. And then seeing how everything is really based on relationship with him and with our brothers and sisters in faith. So, and the fact that all, that all leads to a deeper human experience of joy yeah. uh, that this world can't offer. That's awesome. How do you feel like that it's impacted you and especially your ministry as a priest for you to come from a place you said how, you know, you felt like you were wondering earlier on in your, your younger days, you know, it, God, are you really there? Are you really out there for me? Having, you know, that be your foundation to have a converting moment from that space, has that helped you be able to be like empathetic towards others and being able to share the joy of the gospel with them? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, uh, I always reference like, the scriptures where it says St. Peter was sent to the, the Jews and St. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. And man, do I feel an affinity for St. Paul and being sent to the Gentiles because I was a Gentile. Like this idea that um, I have such a heart for people that like don't get faith and don't understand faith. And especially people that have all sorts of hangups with the church. Like I love those people. Like they're the group I am most affectionate about. Uh, because I get it. Um, I know what that means to feel like on the outside and then being drawn in and how you even make that journey. So I don't know, my, my heart is for those who are just like questioning and skeptical and even those who identify as agnostic and atheist, like it's weird that I can say that they're my heart. Mm. They're the ones that I truly love and want to have conversations with and dialogue with because for me their world is much more interesting than my own uh in terms of how do you bring the gospel to that arena uh and i think a lot of it just comes from this call to authenticity um and i think that's what 
you know, people in, on that spectrum would probably say, yeah, like authenticity is what I respond to, but also humility and especially intellectual humility. I think that's a lost art sometimes. And what we do with evangelization in the church is if we exude intellectual humility, that actually draws more people to the church. Uh, so not coming in hot with like, I, I have all these degrees and yeah. I can have the conversation and I can facilitate the dialogue. I come in and I'm just like totally uh, Socratic in my approach uh, and just say, I know nothing. So I'm going to listen first. And I love listening because I'm learning from them, even though they think that I come in as a Catholic priest and I'm trying to teach and like right. guide and facilitate. I literally learn so much from people that don't identify with the church, that don't identify with the faith, uh, because in some ways, um, it taps into that authentic human search and wrestling for relationship with God, even when we don't know that we're wrestling and searching for a relationship. Right. No, it's, and it's exactly what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. The first thing he asks is what are you guys talking about? Right. He's listening to them and then he's responding with a message after the fact along the way. And I think, that's what I totally see that in you and, and the intellectual humility I see in you, especially because, you know, you, you always give off like this very personable vibe, whether you're just speaking to you one-on-one -on -one or if you're preaching and you also can tell, you know, there's these moments though, where you'll, you'll just kind of like sprinkle in like things that, that, you know, and you're very smart. You can tell if you really look, you know, behind the curtain a little bit into this and I just love those moments because it's like, you know, you'll, you'll be speaking to a group of young people and, um, you know, you'll say something like a, you'll drop a Greek word or something that, you know, you'll be like, I said that to impress you and you'll just, everyone will die laughing. And it's like such a father Jason ism, you know, it's like those types of things because it's like, it's making those things very personal and not over the top and not, you know, in your face. I ha I know this Greek word. It's just, this is helping them dive into the deepness and the richness that is our faith. And I just think you really, you do that very well. So I, I love that. Um, I, I appreciate that. I actually picked up that. Uh, I said that to impress you from one of my favorite seminary oh, faculty yeah. members, Monsignor Fulton, funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. Actually, he was our moral <laughs> theology professor and start every class with like a little stand up comedy routine. And then he would get super deep into moral theology. I'm like, I want to be, when I grow up, I want to be like him. <laughs> so, um, but one of his famous lines is always like, he would, he would say this super smart thing, like at a homily or something. And then everyone would be like mystified by what he just said, because we're not at that intellectual level. And yeah. then he would be like, I said that to impress you. And everyone would just be like busted over, like laughing, like just losing it. And they're like, that's, for me, that's so right. Because it's like, yeah, yeah, we should be able to be lighthearted about our approach to very heavy topics. And that's actually a sign of the joy of the gospel is that you're like, yeah, Hey, uh, Jesus is taking care of the life or death stuff. So even those serious topics, like, yeah, we can dialogue openly about them and sometimes even laugh with each other about some of the mystery behind all of this. Uh, because yeah. I think it's that, uh, like, like St. Francis is like, called him a, called himself a jonglier de do like a juggler for God. Yep. And that uh, just, I think, disarms every conversation when you just come on acting like a fool. Um, 
because sometimes I feel like a fool. And then you get into these spaces and you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting on any errors. Like I, I don't have to defend the church and her tradition. The church's tradition can defend itself. It right. stands on pretty solid ground. It doesn't need me to help. But what it does need is for me to be able to articulate well in a humble and, uh, you know, authentic way, the truth that the, the church is, is proposing and also the beauty behind it. I love that. I want to hear a little bit, just briefly, about your calling now as the diocesan director for vocation promotion. You know, you got tapped for that job pretty early on, uh, you know, right as you kind of get, was it right before or right after you left Holy Family? It was after, yeah. Just after, after. Yeah. you know, pretty quickly you get called in this and, you know, I've loved what you've been doing. I just think it's really incredible, especially for the, you know, the teens that I ministered to, I think to have the young men be able to look up to you and just this witness of joy, I think is we need that for the priesthood, but talk about, you know, your ministry there in that space and what that's been like for you. What was it like when you got the call? Hey, we want you to do this position. Um, what, what was that like for you and what's it like over the past couple of years? Yeah. So when I got the call from Bishop Lucio, it was actually a month after he was ordained a bishop, bishop and, and made the Bishop of Syracuse. So kind of came out of the blue and I was on my family vacation to Lake George and my parents and my siblings are like, who's calling? I'm like, Bishop Lucia. Okay, <laughs> better take this. So I ran over to a quiet space and he just said, hey, I just want you to consider this. And, you know, I know you're pastoring uh, parishes right now. And so, like, I just want to make sure you're comfortable with it. But I feel like you're the guy for the job and, and I want you to do this for me and love to have you on my team. And uh, so my first gut reaction was I was deeply honored because, you know, the work for the bishop's office is just such an incredible honor and privilege. But I was also like, huh, how am I going to make this work? Because I'm pastoring multiple parishes. Like, how does this go? And I remember even talking to Bishop about that. I go, yeah, like, you know, I called him a couple of days later. I go, yeah, like I feel, you know, I prayed about it a bunch in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I was like, I think I have to say yes. Like Bishop's asking and. But I remember asking, I was like, how do I do this, Bishop? Like, how do we do that? He's like, well, well, we'll figure it out together. I was like, okay, all right. And he's like, we'll just adapt and change as we need to. But he's like, I'm, you know, I think we would to have you on my team. So it's a, it's been a whole new reality because uh, Father Joe O'Connor did such a wonderful job before me, you know, was full time in this role for a decade, you know, um, so there was a lot of adapting and changing I had to do right away with the position to say, you know, I can't preach weekend masses at parishes throughout the diocese. I can't show up to every Catholic school on my own. Like I, I quickly had to turn to a team approach and that was for the best because honestly, uh, one of the, the uh, greatest games you can get caught up into as a vocation promoter is one numbers, right? You think, oh, I got to put all these numbers up on the board and two, you, you get tempted to make it about yourself you know, that like, oh, your name's behind all, all these efforts now. So you got to, and, and just being in a position where my hands were literally like tied and yeah. I'm like, I can't, while I'm pastoring four parishes and serving a Newman community, like give the same amount of time and willpower and energy and effort to this role as a vocation promoter. So it forced me to lean on friends, on my yeah. priest colleagues, on my, my, my um, brothers in the priesthood who, we're also very committed to the work of vocation promotion and 
we began to uh, divvy up duties and, and brainstorm together and rethink our entire approach to uh, vocation promotion, which led to the year of vocations. Yeah. Because they sat down with Bishop Lucia after my first year and I said, I, I, I humbly recommend that we consider your vocation as a seer. And of course, he was a vocation director for many years up in Diocese of Augensburg. So he said yes right away. He was just like, oh, I love, love it. Yeah. But I told him why. I said, I think we need to reintroduce to the diocesan family what it means to be the first vocation promoter on the parish level and on the school level. Like, I want to train up lay promoters. And he was all about it because he knows, you know, coming from Ogdensburg, which his whole, sorry, I'm waving my hand. My light keeps yeah. turning on. Off. Um, he knows most of all what it means to carry uh, multiple assignments and wear multiple hats. And I just said, Bishop, I need this to do what I think God's calling me to do in this role. I need people. I need the people of God. I need to tap into that powerhouse and really began to see the laity, especially lay leaders in our parishes and schools as the sleeping giant for pro vocation promotion. And, and just to give you a brief example of the fruit of that uh, effort, like by the end of that year, uh, every single Catholic school had a vocation promotion team, every single Catholic school faculty member, staff member, especially the principals, were all personally trained by Rhonda Grunwald uh, who was our vocations ministry presenter on how to identify a vocation, a young person, call forth that vocation and accompany that young person in their first years of discernment. Um, and then, you know, just seeing the Catholic school's office just like embrace this as an integral piece to their Catholic identity. I'm like, I never would have thought of that or been inspired by that thought if I didn't finally recognize that I can't do this on my own. Like, God's calling us to a new time of, of collaboration around the work of vocation promotion. And it's just been like so healing for me to see laity begin to rally around this vocation promotion effort and bear fruit in things like Priesthood Sunday, where all of a sudden the community sending their pastor like notes of gratitude, yeah, you know, or Deacon Sunday, which is coming up next weekend, like just honoring those who are serving the church like on like making sure that those words of gratitude are being spoken because we know after the pandemic that many of our ministers have gone through a time you know a time of, of testing and trial and a lot of them ended up feeling burnout and not really knowing why they do what they do and you know doubting if it really is relevant or even important um you know almost disillusioned in a way and it's amazing to hear the pastors and the ministers and the deacons and the lay leaders and say like that there's just been this surge of gratitude from a diocesan family to those who are serving Christ in his church and how much even a, a small note of gratitude can yeah. get that minister, that priest, that deacon, that lay leader, uh, like through and encourage them and strengthen them. Cause you know, it was said to me over the summer, um, and it really was, it challenged me. Uh, somebody said, you know, we're always, you're, we're always saying pray for seminarians and that's right. And that's true because they, we need to pray for them for the gift of perseverance because that's what it's all about in seminary is just perseverance. Um, but we need to also like be more direct about pray for your priests. Yeah. Pray for your deacons, pray for your lay leaders, pray for those in youth ministry. Um, Cause man, do we need it right now? And I know, you know, most of all being youth ministry, like through a pandemic, like just the number of times we had to change and adapt and grieve and then yep. like try to reintroduce and then being underwhelmed and then overwhelmed and, Right. Like it, 
man, it would just that hit the nail right on the head for me that like, yeah, are we praying for those and encouraging those and and supporting those who are serving already, not just the seminarians and discerners, but like, and that's where, and I'll end this part of the reflection on this is I really see the work of vocation promotion as not only promoting vocations, which it is it should, but also healing the presbyterate, healing the de deacon right. community, healing all those who are in lay leadership to say like, what you're doing is good. Please never forget that. Right. And make sure your people know that they need to, I, to say that from time to time, like what you're doing is good and it's from God and don't give up, you know? So. No, it's, I love that. And I think it's so needed. Um, you know, it's so needed because I do think, you know, you're right. I feel like as a, you know, as a youth minister, we are very forward facing at the parish and people want to know what we're doing with teens. And so we hit it all the time. People, oh, you're doing such a great job with young people. You're doing such a great job with this person, that person, you know, and I just feel like the priest, while they're very forward facing, obviously they are still very forgotten because they're just assumed, you know, they're just like, it's, we just assume that it, you know, father's just, this is what he does. This is who he is. And, and we don't think often that it's, um, you know, hey, great job with that homily or great job with that mass or, you know, wow, it was really nice to see you um, during that prayer service praying, like that encouragement, just whatever it is. And just to give priests encouragement is so needed because I do think, you know, it's, you're right. I mean, that that is so needed. That is so Yeah, needed. and I think the thing too is just to raise awareness that there's a human being behind that collar there's a right. human being behind that habit. And that the more the people of God are made aware of that and more aware of that, that that actually helps that priest and that religious sister, that brother or that deacon live an even healthier life. Um, like, you know, I think during the pandemic, uh, you know, the priest kind of absorbs a lot of people's inner chaos, you know, and doubt and anxiety and fear and, um, but that's a human being absorbing that. Yeah, it's a divine vocation. And as a priest, you participate in this um, sacrificial nature of Christ's priesthood. Uh, and so that's kind of meant to happen, that the chaos that happens internally or externally in the life of the people of God is kind of absorbed into the body of the priest. And that's actually what gives the priest the ability to say during the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, not this is Jesus's body, this is Jesus's blood. No, this is my body along with Christ that's being sacrificed on the cross for you. Right. Uh, take and eat, uh, you know, and, but I think at the same time, um, just those kind and human expressions of, you know, encouragement and support uh, go such a long way because sometimes you never know what your priest might be going through. You never know the struggles he might be having in his personal life. You know, even sometimes a priest can have struggles of faith. Yeah. You know, and you just, just to, to be made aware of that and acknowledge that as, you know, especially for the lady to say like, Father, we see what we're doing. We thank you. Like, again, it doesn't have to be all the time every day. It doesn't have to be over the top, but like on specific days of the year to say like, no, we need to stop and give thanks because yeah. like there, there's a, there's an essential role here that he's playing that is essential not only to this faith community, but even to the wider community, you know? So, so I even think about the role uh, one of my parishes played in the recent death of um, one of our young people. And uh, 
man, you just look at how a parish just becomes a, a powerhouse for community building in any local community, because there's no force in this world that can gather people like a Catholic parish can. There's just something that there's like a, there's like a force behind it. We know that's the Holy Spirit, of course, as believers, but even for non-believers, they know that there's just this like compassionate, warm embrace that like is always ready to extend itself anytime there's tragedy. <laughs> like yeah. there's really no other organization in any community that exists in the same way to the same degree with the same intensity that yeah. literally is like always on the lookout for those who are in pain and suffering. And the fact that that community desires to draw near to those who are at the foot of the cross, like it's kind of a wild thought, but yeah, the, the Catholic parish really is leaven in the dough. You know, it really is the the salt of the earth. Um, and if salt loses its taste, what what is it worth? But no, like if there's there's a parish community that's literally like uh, faithful at the foot of the cross always, like man, that becomes such a powerful force for the wider community mm. because there's no other institution that's literally waiting to embrace those who are in suffering, and pain, and tragedy. I love that. No, it's so true. Uh, how do you, I mean, I, I wonder, Beck, just because I, I want to ask this question just because it's on my heart. I just feel like I want to know what your take is on this. Like, where do you think this, the the issue of um, people maybe in the, in the pews not seeing the humanity of the priests, where do you think that problem comes from? And then also, do you, like, how do we inspire lay leaders to not only see that that human being behind the collar, but also to to stand up and say that I'm with you and and I'm going to walk alongside you, Father, or you know whoever it might be? Because I I do sense that there's also a sense in the church where it's like Father should do it, like it's you know it's his ministry. How how do we do that? And where do you think that problem stems from? Uh, I think it's like an old model of leadership. Um, and again, I think our past leaders are doing the best they could, the tools they had. And also that model of leadership worked at the time because there just wasn't as much activity. Uh, you know, if you were pastoring one parish, like you could be like, this is my parish and I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to ask my people to do it my way. But when you're pastoring multiple parishes, when you're also serving in other roles in the diocesan family, you get to a point where you say, I have to stop um, calling all of the shots and let those make decisions who are actually better equipped than I am. Just for the sake of not only survival, but just like viability right. uh, for that that faith community. And, and this is what I mean by that. like. So, and I've said this to my, my parishes, I love and adore them so much, and especially my pastoral councils, because I have four pastoral councils that meet all at the same time when we meet. Uh, of course, we start as a large group, and then we break up into small groups per each parish, and we come back to report to the larger group. We always start with Lexio Divino, we're always praying, like, um, just a really cool dynamic. But I've said this to them, I said, when I got there five years ago, like, you know, they kind of came from an old style of leadership where it was like, well, Father, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And they would never speak to what they thought or what they desired for their faith community or even uh, speak to their dreams for their community, like to have them dream out loud about where they feel the spirits inspiring them to lead and to serve. And um, so I had to get to a point where I just said, 
I just stop when they ask me to make a decision. I'm not going to give them an answer. Yeah. And uh, man, that's it's such a cool exercise. But five years later, it's amazing how like these people feel a real deep sense of co-ownership, co-responsibility over their own faith community. So much so they're willing to put their names behind decisions that are made uh, mm -hmm. as a community to say, this is where we're going. We're tapping into our evangelizing mission, which is always our first priority. This is how we're going to accomplish our goals this year to help reach souls we haven't reached before. And But like even when they break them to small groups, I don't sit with them. I just say, here's the agenda for tonight. Here's some things I want answers on. Here's some recommendations and advice I need on how we move forward with these different areas of how we reach people. And then I ask them to like tell me what they think is important and what they want to put their their resources and personnel behind. And it's such a beautiful dialogue between Shepherd and and the people and and you know dialogue between the pastor and and the people. Um, and it really becomes, for me, uh, modeling priesthood as a servant of the servants of Christ. You know that they're not here to serve me. You know that was the old model leadership. If I had lay leaders, they're here to serve my purposes as pastor. And for me, I just try to always humble myself and say, I, I got to remember I'm a servant, a servant of Christ. So whatever I can help these servants of Christ in terms of their mission to serve Jesus in his church, like that's what I'm going to do. I'm not here to serve my own purposes. And right. um, even just seeing uh, the parishes I'm pastor of as uh, I'm a steward of these parishes, but these aren't mine. These aren't mine. Right. These parishes are not mine. These these belong to these people. Right. So um, just trying to inculcate that idea that I'm just a steward of the gift I've been given in these parish communities. But these are your parishes. These are the parishes you're called to take ownership over and have a sense of responsibility over the decisions we make and the steps we take and how we spend resources and even how we use personnel. So um, it really is like flipping that old model leadership on its head, but man, it breaks the the doors wide open in terms of the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our faith communities to say, like even the simple line, like people always say, oh, our parish should show up at this community event. Father, you should go. Deacon, you should go. And I always say, well, you're a pastoral council member, so you represent our parish. Yeah. So if you're there, we're all there. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I draw a correlation to is you know, the, the evangelical and Protestant communities in our rural areas do such a great job modeling this because like that's a group of laity in those those communities who just like get their mission, they grab a hold of their mission and they feel a part of the mission so much so that when they're out in the wider community, they're like representing their church. Right. Um, and I think if Catholics could get their heads around that, which I think some of the parishes are, like I know in my own PCA, it's so beautiful to see like, these lay leaders like step forward and say like, yeah, I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to take responsibility for this. Yeah. And it's not just going to be pointing at father and saying, father, what are you going to do? Now I look back at them and I'm like, what do you think we should do? Right. And now I'm taking their lead. It's such right. a, it's just a flipping thing. It's also one of the reasons just, uh, I never spoken to this out loud, but every time I send a message out to the parish, I always sign it. Your servant in Christ, just to re remind people that I'm really your servant. Right. <laughs> I <laughs> uh, just and I drive. I do that to drive it home to myself. Most of all, I'd be like, "No, no, I'm writing this because I'm their servant um, in Jesus." So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but no, I love that, and I think it's such a good model of like what our entire Christian, like this Catholic life, is about. Right? We as a community 
all of us, including the priests, are just people. And you come to us, at, yeah, you're serving us, but you're another person. And we go to you to find our strength because you give us the Eucharist, you give us the sacraments. Those things should fill us up so that when we go out, and that's the key, right? If it just stops, we're just there filling ourselves up. We're just going to just, we got to go and pour ourselves out and we have to go and do something about it. And I think that's what you're showing is that perfect model that is people coming together and really coming together in the face of God, receiving something that strengthens them, which is Jesus, and then going out and pouring that out to everyone they encounter in their community. I think that is, that's so, you know, that's beautiful. I think that's amazing. And I think if, we can all start to do that more and more. You're right. I mean, that, that'll be transformative to the way that we walk alongside people in the community, no matter what their background is, or, you know, if they're in our community, you know, in our church community or not, you know, we'll make them feel like they're part of that community yeah. because of how we love. And I think it accomplishes two things to your questions before is one, it humanizes the priest because when he comes in to serve a community, like, when you're just saying, Father, whatever you want, Father, what should we do? Father, you should do this. Like they kind of treat the priest as like a little God or something. Like he can do it all. He's supposed to have all the gifts, all the yeah. talents. He's supposed to be an accountant. He's supposed to be a financial you know, advisor. He's supposed to be able to fix toilets. And he's also supposed to, you know, make every perfect decision about reorganization. And yeah. I studied theology. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go to school for anything else. Um, so, you know, just getting the people into that mindset of like, no, that's where the lay leaders not only have an important role, they have an essential role right. because they have expertise that I don't have. And to expect the priest to say like, you have to make the call on every single decision at every level of our parish is actually treating the priest less human yeah. because he's looking for your guidance, your advice. Like, what should we do? What do you recommend? What's your advice? Like that's the new model that humanizes the priest more. So that way the priest isn't carrying all of the administrative burden of a parish, but is actually, you know, relieving that administrative burden to people who actually have the expertise to be able to make competent decisions. And then secondly, and uh, it has to do in of, of what the church envisions for evangelization. And Bishop Lucia is all about this, that it takes a hundred years for the church to actually absorb the impact of a council, an ecumenical council. So you know, it's the 60th anniversary of the Council of the uh, of the Vatican II. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're, he thinks we're just in a position where we can start to absorb and, and, and process the impact of that beautiful council. But, you know, in, in the council documents, and I've said this to, you know, the lay leaders I work with, I'm like, uh, when they talk about evangelizing forces in the world and the, the evangelizing force that is the church, uh, it actually envisions specifically lay people living and working in the heart of the world yeah. like catholic professionals who right. are husbands and mothers and fathers and like on the when we talk about taking the the gospel to the farthest corners of the world in the document setting man council the farthest corners of the world are your workspaces are your schools like that's missionary territory and um just waking up the sleeping giant that is the, the laity to say like you're the evangelist waiting for us. I'm not. I'm yeah. here to support and guide and encourage that evangelizing force and to encourage them to grow in discipleship. But the church never envisions the priest going to every workspace, into every school, into every, you know, that's, 
that's the laity's mission territory. And so I'm, if I'm actually finding myself in all those places at the request of the laity, I'm actually not doing my job. My job is to, to feed and nourish those in the heart of the church to go out into that missionary territory where only the laity can find themselves. Like, you know, and this is just a little fun example. Like people would say to me early on in my pastorate, like, oh, Father, you need to talk to this person. I met this person. They brought up faith. I didn't know what to say, but you need to talk to them. You need to make time for them. Father, you need to go out to this, you know, business and, and you need to talk to the owner because they said something that, you know, it sounds like they're open. But I was, and now I, I always say like, well, what, what did you offer? Yeah. Did you, what did you, what did you feel called to say in that moment? Well, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was worthy to say anything. Like I didn't feel equipped. I'm like, you're at mass every Sunday. You come to all of our adult faith formation events. You go to the Bible study. You go to Alpha. Like, you're <laughs> equipped to at least share your story of faith. And then it's like that eye-opening moment where they're like, wait, that's on me? You're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, no, I'm not going to go meet that person. You're the one that's representing Christ in that moment more than I ever could. Because guess what? They have a relationship with you and not me. And we yeah. know that evangelization only happens when people first start with a trusting relationship. They have to trust you first in order to believe the truth of the gospel. So guess what? I'm not the one called to preach to them. You are. Yeah. I preach to you so you can preach to them. And it's just a total shift in, like, again, taking responsibility and ownership over that call to share the good news of Jesus. And uh, it makes sense when you point it out to people. They're like, oh, yeah, like, I'm friends with them. Father, you're not friends with them. If they yeah. meet with me, they'll be like, why am I meeting with this person's priest? Like, I don't know this guy. Yeah, and they'll see the collar and they're like, what the alert? Yeah, alert. Like, what? Some people think I'm like the grim reaper when the collar shows up. They think death is coming or something, you know? So, no, they don't want to meet with me, but they want to meet with you. And that's there's a reason why they opened up to you about their questions and their wrestling. Yeah. Uh, because they want you to weigh in. But it's just getting our Catholics to a place where they feel confident enough and courageous enough to say, I do have something to say. When my friend, my colleague, my coworker, um, had you know opens up to me about a question of faith i love that well let's dive into this book so you know that article from the catholic son that i had up on the screen briefly in the beginning said that you went on a spiritual journey that led you to, to write this book so what was that spiritual journey that led you to write the cyrenian way uh i think it's just uh, my own my own personal faith journey to jesus and and a lot of my faith journey has been uh, centered around my ability or inability to embrace the cross and my willingness or unwillingness to stand at the foot of the cross. Um, because in seminary, like it was a very like romantic idea of like, yeah. yeah, I'll stand at the foot of the cross and I'll embrace my cross and accept suffering for the salvation of souls. But then when you're actually in it yeah, and uh, when your heart's confronted with the cross man is it a journey and yeah. um i just realized that so many people out there have no idea what to do with the cross even the best intentioned catholics who are faithful and they're on that threshold of faith because they still haven't come to terms with what the cross means in their own life and whether or not they're willing to accept it and Jesus says, you can't follow me unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. It's like, 
it's the hardest thing, but it's the most beautiful thing. It's our treasure. I mean, the cross is the source of all life. I mean, it's the tree of life. Um, it, it looks horrible, <laughs> but when you embrace it, it's everything. It literally is life itself. So that's kind of what inspired that that book is to say, how do we, how, how do we help people around us uh, come to terms with their discipleship and, and how that's, that's all dependent on their ability or inability to take up their cross. Now, did you do your pastoral year at Holy Cross Parish? I did. Yeah. Do, do you think in any way that was, you know, that space being at that parish, being the name Holy Cross, did that ever, you know, lead into that thinking? Oh, yeah. I mean, just the images in that church, like they have a gigantic crucifix, as you know, surrounded by blinding light when the sun's pouring through that stained glass window. And, you know, it's yeah. all like a bright sunburst, you know, and it's hard to look at. You know, I remember that as a, as a pastoral year seminary, and I said, it's hard to look at this cross. It's so beautiful, the corpus. When that light is blazing behind it, you can barely see the details. It's very hard to, to gaze upon, but you know it's so the beauty still draws you in. And then there's this other beautiful stained glass window in their adoration chapel um, of Jesus standing with empty hands and the wounds and hands in his feet. And and those images were just deeply uh, impressed upon my mind because I'm like, oh, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, like he kept his wounds. That's kind of like wild, you know, and why would God in his glorified body choose to keep these wounds? Yeah. Yeah, this is something that started that whole meditation. I love that. So your your pillars are the chapters of the book. I, and I love this book. You, you said that you've you intentionally wrote it as a quick pickup. You could sit it, sit down and read it in one sitting, you know, five chapters. And those pillars are the invitation to spiritual poverty, the call to silence, the sweet embrace, the mystery of all mysteries, and the mother of mercy. What Talk about those pillars of the Cyrenian way and, and why are they important to you? And, and what do you think calls to you the most, you know, right now at this time in your life? Because maybe at different times you connect with one more than the other. But right now, which of those pillars do you feel really called to? Well, I think all of them uh, invite me to a childlike faith, you know, to be truly childlike. And, and even how I share my faith, uh, how I speak to it, how I encounter and experience it, just to encounter it with a real deep simplicity. That like God's truth is always spoken in very simple, simple ways, you know, and it's for the humble of heart, that intellectual humility that says like, Oh, if I want to be great in the eyes of God, I have to become little. Um, and I think that's what those five pillars helped me do. And that's why I felt called to share them, because I, I just want to invite people to the joy that comes from living a childlike faith with the simplest approaches that the church has, has to that the church has to offer from her spiritual tradition. So even like the call to spiritual poverty, just seeing the relationships you already have in your life as the streets of Calcutta. You know, that Mother Teresa went out on the streets to find the poorest of the poor and could physically pick them up and bandage their wounds and accompany them and care for them. But, you know, how often we miss the mission field right in front of us because we don't see the poor in our midst, spiritually mm -hmm. hungry, 
you know, the spiritually impoverished and, um, and it could be our family. It could be our friends. It could be our colleagues, our coworkers, um, you know, our teammates, like whatever it is, like, are we identifying the spiritual poverty in them? And are we choosing to enter into the pain of their poverty and okay. to console them and to accompany them and to carry their crosses as if it were our own and to see that as similar to what St. Mother Teresa did in bandaging wounds and, you know, feeding people and, and accompanying them, uh, you know, especially for those who prepared for death. Um, do we do the same for the people in our life? Or do we think the missionary field is somewhere else? When yeah. the streets of Calcutta are always right outside our door and the relationships that we have. So that's the one. Uh, what's the second one? Remind me, I, even though I wrote the yeah, book. It's I it's the silence. Yeah, silence is the place where we learn how to be okay with our spiritual poverty. Um, that we don't have to perform for God to get his attention. You know, sometimes Catholics think I have to accomplish all these prayers in yeah. order to get God's attention and please God. But if God's already pleased with you as a beloved son or beloved daughter, like when you pray, it's actually letting God pray in you. Yeah. Uh, as he draws you closer to himself and into his life. So actually less is more in prayer. And uh, even St. Augustine says that when you're, when you're praying in the deepest way that the churches has to offer, you're actually praying without words at that point. Like the deepest prayer is a prayer without words. It's just a groaning. It's a longing. It's a, it's that pain in your heart that you feel when you're just reaching out to God and just wanting that relationship. So spiritual poverty is, is actually uh, becomes a gift when you sit in silent prayer mm. and just be in his presence. And, you know, you've heard me bring up before, like the, the line in the catechism when, on, on the section in contemplative prayer where St. John Vianney is a parish priest and he sees this farmer coming in every morning at like 5 a.m. before he goes out in the fields and he comes in every day and Father Vianney sees this man sitting, no rosary, no prayer book, no book of the gospels, like just sat for an hour and then would go out. And so Father Vianney gets the courage one day to go up to him and he's like, what are you doing? Like, just tell me what you're doing. Like, he goes, well, I come in here and he looked at the blessed sacrament. He goes, I look at him and he looks at me. That's, that's it. it. It's the deepest form of prayer. That's contemplative prayer. It's the prayer beyond words. And I think silent prayer is what teaches us to be okay with our spiritual poverty, to see it for the gift that it is, the great gift that it is, and to recognize that all God wants from us is our hearts. Like yeah. we come before him with empty hands so he can fill them. With yeah. his gifts, not anything we have to offer. Yeah, no, I, I was super blessed to go out and help you with leading your confirmation teens in that retreat a few weeks ago at your parish. And, you know, we sat down at the end for adoration and we're sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And you did make this, you said that story and, and you you asked that we'd sit in silence for 10 minutes. And, you know, in youth ministry, we're always like, well, what are we going to do to make that? We're going to, all right, we're going to start with five minutes of silence. Okay, then we're gonna have you come on and play a little song, or maybe we'll put on Spotify playlists, and then we'll 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 fade it out. And we'll just let them sit for a second. We'll do benediction. It'll be great. But it's just like no, we don't even need to worry about all this, that, and the other. What's the agenda? Because you know God doesn't have an agenda. He just wants to be with us and just silence. I and I, I was I was a little intimidated when you said that. <laughs> and then we sat in that silence, and it was like. It was awesome. I mean, those those kids there just like were fixated on it. And I remember looking over at one of the guys there and, and he was just like eyes closed, just hands open. And I was just like, 
whoa, super cool to see that. Um, because it, yeah, the sign got, you know, God just speaks to us in the silence if we yeah. let him. Yeah. And it just flips our understanding of what value being valuable means, you know, because yeah. in, in our human relations, we think our, I'm valuable for what I offer somebody or what I can do. But God just flips that thinking right on his head and says, no, I just want you. You're valuable for who you are. Yeah. Before you can contribute anything to building up as a kingdom or serving his, you know, Christ in his church. Like you're valuable even if you can't do anything because he's chosen you to love. And just look at the cross. We need to be reminded of that. He just wants you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then what's the third pillar again? So the third would be the sweet embrace. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the cross. So that's yeah. where you're just like, like Simon of Cyrene, we realized that, yeah, it was kind of forced upon him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure he was questioning the first couple of steps with the cross on his back. And he's standing with this convicted criminal, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's probably like, why am yeah. I having to carry this man's cross? But by the end, um, it was the sweetest embrace he's ever experienced in life. He got to embrace God. Yeah. You know, as his arms intertwined with Jesus' arms around the back of the cross as they carried it up Calvary, like, he literally touched God. He literally touched heaven. Yeah. And he wouldn't have experienced that unless he had embraced his cross. Uh, so just seeing the, the cross for the, the jewel that it is in our faith. Uh, and then the fourth one is the Eucharist, right? So again, yeah. it's, this, it's the, the most beautiful epitome of what spiritual poverty is, that God is so humble that he comes to us in what looks like bread and wine, like the simplest of elements. And we see just how egoless our, our God has no ego. Yeah. Like if he's willing to be worshiped and glorified in what looks like bread, like, wow, the maker of heaven and earth comes to me in such simple signs. Like it just teaches us that we have to be okay with our littleness. Like if God's willing to become this little, yeah. so we can encounter him and have relationship with him like we got to be so okay with our littleness like we don't have to do anything grand we don't have to do these amazing dramatic gestures for god like just show up to your post and love him in it show up to your you know daily vocation the duties that are attached to it and be faithful to it be faithful to your friendships be faithful to your family like like just be little in the way you serve god and watch yeah. how he takes that mustard seed and just multiplies it and just makes it something so amazing because it'll become clear to you that it's not your work it's his and it's not your victory it's his in your life so and that's why i promote in that chapter like at least 30 minutes in front of the blessed sacrament and you know if it's not daily mass then try to find time just to sit in the church for half an hour and just be in the presence of the eucharist and and I just think that silent prayer in front of the Blessed Sacrament bears so much fruit. Um, and then the fifth chapter is our Mother Mary, which, again, she is like the perfect embodiment of spiritual poverty. You know, what it means to have, to be poor in spirit. You know, she was empty enough for God to fill her with his yeah. own word. Yeah. And it actually took flesh. Like, and I, you know, I also recommend like uh, the rosary, you know, as the prayer of poverty. Yeah. You know, and uh, wearing the scapular of our Blessed Mother is the sign of poverty. You know, that when you see someone else wearing the scapular, you realize that that's another poor pilgrim on the journey with me trying to take up their crest daily. But like, just can we empty ourselves enough to be filled? 
you know, yeah. to let go of what we perceive as our riches, to let God fill our cup. And uh, Mary just is such a great model and example of that. And then I think also, too, just letting her become your your greatest intercessor in your pursuit of spiritual poverty and uh, also in your pursuit of the cross to say, how do I embrace the crosses that already exist in my life and do them with a sense of joy yeah. and hopefulness and most especially a deep faith. So, and I, I think all those pillars are drawn from our church's long spiritual tradition and heritage. And, you know, it's guided saints in every age and generation, but I think sometimes and that's what inspired me to write the book too, is that we overcomplicate our life in God. Yeah. You know, that the spiritual pillars that the church is, puts forth, like, they're so simple. But sometimes we think, well, it's got to be more complex. It's got to be more dramatic. It's got to be more of a generous response than just these simple inclusions in my daily life. But, man, it's yeah. been guiding every saint in every age. Why don't we just trust the simplicity of these things and become that little sparrow? You know, I love that line, his eyes on the sparrow. Yeah. Like it's not on those who are, you know, glorious and majestic and well-known and famous. It's literally on the, the one that no one notices. I mean, I even see this in my parishes and I'll probably close up soon on this one is it's God chooses to reveal himself to the little ones in our faith communities. Like it's those people with that childlike faith and very simple understanding. And maybe they don't have any formation or, you know, education and theology. But man, do these people know God? Yeah. Like they are closer to God than some of us will ever be because they know what it means to be childlike and humble in our understanding of our faith and to trust those very simple spiritual practices to be the deepest connection to God, to trust those very simple spiritual practices to bring them into right relationship with God and to keep them in right relationship with God to give him right praise. And you know, I just think we have to trust simplicity again of our faith, of our spiritual practices that we take on. And it doesn't have to be anything, you know, crazy. Yep. <laughs> you know, just, just start with those reachable goals. And I think that's the thing too for most Catholics out there is that um, sometimes they have all these, you know, large goals for their spiritual lives. They're like, I got to do this, that, and the other thing to be, you know, in right relationship and to have this ongoing dialogue with God. I'm like, man, if our Catholics just understood that it's so simple and it's simple for a reason because they're reachable. So start yeah. with the reachable goals first, you know, even recommend to people who've never done adoration of blessed sacrament and say, how can I even do a half an hour? I said, well, just start with 10 minutes, yeah. start with reachable goals. Right. And watch how those intentional practices all of a sudden you're intentionally inviting Jesus into your life, into your day, into every hour. And watch how he begins to sanctify all of it just from those simple invitations that you send out throughout the day. Yeah, that'll be, that's huge. I love that. Well, I just want to thank you. Before I ask my little closing question, I ask everybody, I just want to thank you for the work that you do, the priest that you are, the man that you are, because I think you are inspiring so many people to, to know Jesus and, and to go out and, and love the world um, because of, you know, what they receive from you. I really, really believe that. You know, I think um, I posted a quote for St. Vincent de Paul yesterday on Facebook, and it was, um, um, you know, when your life is centered around Christ, 
words aren't necessary, that your mere presence will do the talking. And I, I really see that in you and um, your your priesthood and, and everything that you do um, in your life. Um, and, and I just thank you for the work you're doing with the Cyrenian Way because I, you know, this book has really impacted me and I know it's impacting a lot of people. And I think that it's something that's going to be a spiritual gem in the church. And I thank you for, for what you're doing with St. Simon of Cyrene because I think, you know, to kind of come full circle and connect with everything here, you know, he is sort of a, a, a hidden mystery of the church where he's not really talked about a lot. And it, it's, you know, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like what we were talking about with the priest that, you know, we kind of just, we just kind of uh, forget about that. You know, we just kind of assume mm -hmm. that he's in the story. Um, and uh, we just kind of, it's just part of the, Jesus story. It's not part of his story. And so to, to honor St. Simon in that way and to, to kind of lift him up, I think is a great honor that, um, you've given to the whole church and, um, to the kingdom of God, honestly. So thank you for doing that. And I'm, I'm really, I'm just grateful to, to know you and to have you as a friend. And so, um, I think you're doing great things that, that are going to really produce a lot of fruit. So thank you. So, and already are. So thank you so much for that. Appreciate that so much, Nick. It's again always a joy to share with you uh, just what God's doing out there and our church and, and our lives. So thank you so much for this invitation. Absolutely. And and to close, I ask everyone: fast forward your life, boom, you're dead. <laughs> and, okay. So this Catholic life, we're we're gonna wow. go through the whole scope of it, right? I so now it. you're dead, but you you you're you're in heaven, of course, and you get to come back and choose what. Are you going to be the patron saint of? What are you aspiring to be the patron saint of if you got to choose one day? Laughter. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I just, anytime someone laughs, I just want to be praying for that, that it's even deeper laughter. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, comedians and just joy. Just want so much joy out there. So yeah, I would love to be the patron saint of like comedians and laughter. And yeah. I love it. Yeah, I never thought about that before, but what a great question to ask people. That's wonderful. Yeah, I love that. That it gives me the the show title. So you'll it'll be <laughs> Father Jason Hage, aspiring patron saint of laughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. It. Well, thank you so much. And everybody, thank you for listening and uh tuning in to this Catholic life. Um, I hope you go out there and get a copy of Father Jason Hage's book. Just search the Cyrenian Way. You can find it on Amazon. It's on Kindle. And it's the best thing ever. It's going to bless your life. So go get it. Sit down for your holy hour or whatever you do. Pray with that book and uh, enjoy it. Write them a review. It'll be great. <laughs> God bless you all. Have a great day. Thanks, Nick. God bless you. God bless you.